Hi, I'm Susan. And this is Diane. And this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis. Or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, let you learn and let you grow together with other mothers when autumn comes. Spoiler alert, you are going to love today's guest. She is fun. Her daughter has a hot pink wheelchair with sparkles, which I may be a little biased because so does my kid. Stephanie also has pink in her hair, I believe. But more than that, she is a fellow NICU mom and she is just extremely positive. She decided in the midst of a very, very long NICU and PICU stay, she decided you know what? We're just going to make the best of this. And now she is the author of a number one best-selling children's book. So meet Stephanie. Okay. We are here today with Stephanie, which I am very excited about. I found you and your beautiful family through one of the Facebook groups about Make-A-Wish. And you had shared about your story about going and I then went from there to your Instagram and just your positivity attracted me to your story. And I messaged you thinking you would never reply. And here we are. So welcome to When Autumn Comes. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about Addie? Like what's she into these days? Oh, goodness. Addie is into anything pink. Um, she loves the color pink. She's got pink bows, pink dresses, a hot pink wheelchair. Um, so pink is her jam. Um, currently obsessed also with balloons. Ooh. She loves balloons. And um, she recently had a little stint in the hospital for a week. And when she came home, her daddy had bought like, I don't even know how many balloons and just like filled the living room with balloons for her. And you've never seen a kid smile so big. I thought that was for your book launch. That was like for her. That was just for her. And it just so happened that the launch happened the next day. And we were like, we're going to use these balloons. I was like, man, (laughs) she, she really went all in with the book launch, but that's even more exciting that that was just for her. I, my husband needs to step up his game is what, what we're saying. Come on, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us what brings you here. Really, truly. It began a long time ago. Um, I have two twin nieces and one um, has special needs. And so I grew up with a little bit of knowledge about what that was like just from secondhand experience. Um, But then, yeah, Addie is six and a half now. And when we were pregnant with her, 
Uh, we found out that she was going to have different complications. They didn't really explicitly say at first. And that led us through like this crazy journey that we now know is the disabled community. And uh, it has taught us so much. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Growing up with, you know, you said it was your nieces or cousins? One of my nieces. One of your nieces. Did you have this maybe idea of like, oh, I could totally do that or no, I could never do that type of view? Honestly, I don't think either of those things crossed my mind. Um, When my nieces were born, I was 12 years old. So I was fairly young and just seeing how different challenges, you know, were um, maybe helped, you know, therapies and things like that. Like I definitely thought about like, oh, those are really cool occupations to have. Like I would love to help kids that have different disabilities, but it never really went further than maybe that kind of a thought. Not necessarily a, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I could do this or not, but just like, I think it's cool to help others. Mm -hmm. And now you have Addie who is six and a half and you have your son who is typical. Yes. So Lawson is three next week and he was born without any um, complications. So it's definitely like having another first child again because mm-hmm. it's a totally different experience. With Addie, we were in the hospital for the first 10 months of her life. We knew everything or we knew a lot of things that we were going to be facing as far as challenges. And then to have Lawson a few years later and know that he would be typically developing, it threw me for a complete loop because I was like, I don't even know how to parent like this. Like Mm. it's totally different. So it's been interesting going through a parenting journey in that sense. How do you give meds to somebody without a G tube? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I know that definitely like the first time he was like really sick. I was like, I don't even know what to do. Like, how do I make sure you're hydrated when you don't have a G tube <laughs> and you're vomiting? Like, yeah, it's, it's definitely trial and error with kids. Like it's so different. It's so and different. it's something that's so funny because if somebody had told you seven years ago that you would be giving meds to somebody with a G tube and who has a trach and like, you'd be like, how do you do that? But then you have a typical child and you're like, how am I supposed to do this? Yeah, exactly. It's so weird. And especially because Addie was in the hospital for so long, I learned a lot um, Mm. because I quit my job as a teacher to be by her side, essentially. Um, And so I feel like I almost have like nursing qualifications. Um, It seems that way, at least sometimes, or at least respiratory therapist qualifications, maybe. (laughs) It was definitely different having Lawson afterward and feeling like I knew nothing about parenting in general. So it's, like I said, it's been a learning journey for and sure. And then when they let you take Lawson home after a couple days versus 10 months in the NICU, I'm sure that was just baffling. Oh, I was like, wait, they're sending him home and he doesn't have cords? Like, I don't have to plug him in anywhere. I don't have to. Like, it was really funny. And I'm pretty sure I did a post about that. Like, hey, they're letting us take him home. And like, what do I do? Are they sure? (laughs) I'm like, wait, where's this pulse ox? And like, (laughs) you know, I've never thought about that. Like, there's something to be said for knowing after you learn, like, 
monitoring things and knowing that they're hydrated. I mean, I've never dealt with any of that. Like I just took my kids home and, you know, fed them and whatnot. And I'm sure there's some sense of security and control of like being able to watch all that. And all of a sudden they hand you this kid and you're like, wait, but how do I know if they're alive? What do I do? Absolutely. And like, I mean, it's so funny too, because since Addie was in the NICU and PICU for so long, she was on like a regular eating schedule. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how they had to do it because all the nurses have all these babies. And so she was on this feeding schedule. And when Lawson came home, it was like, breastfeed on demand. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> I'm not this flexible. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get him on the schedule. Yeah. Exactly. Like, come on, kid. <laughs> Let's back up to when you were in your 20-week ultrasound and you saw the face of your technician. Yeah. Okay. So being a new, newly pregnant mom, I literally knew nothing about pregnancy. None of my friends had been pregnant. We were kind of like the first in our small group of friends. I went to the 20-week ultrasound thinking, this is so you can find out the gender. Like, that's what a 20-week ultrasound is. You find out the gender, then you have your gender reveal party. Like, this is going to be awesome. So, like, right before our appointment, my husband Matthew and I had come up with, like, our final boy name, our final girl name. We were like, yes, we're coming in. We're prepared. We're ready. And we went to the ultrasound, and um, everything was going fine. And then we hit the um, anatomy scan portion where they tell you what gender you're having. And they said, it's a girl. And we were like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And, you know, it was sobbing and the whole nine yards like, oh, her name is going to be Addison Olivia. And we were just like so overjoyed and, you know, like I said, sobbing. And shortly thereafter, it got like really quiet and like that awkward silence that happens when something's just not right. And the tech just kind of made like fa- like a face, like a worried face. And ultrasound techs are not allowed to tell you what they see because they're not technically doctors. So they have to do their findings, send it to the doctor. The doctor interprets the- Which is um, the most frustrating results. thing ever because you yes. know something. But then I will say for my second one, when the ultrasound tech did talk, I wanted to punch her in the face. She said to me, <laughs> she said to me, the house has been built, but no one moved in. <gasps> yeah. And that's why they shouldn't talk. <laughs> I'm literally like floored. I cannot believe someone would even have that come out of their mouths. Yeah, um, no. And Benji had yeah. moved in. He was just very tiny with a disease. Um, but like, <laughs> you don't, like, maybe that's why they're not supposed to talk. I don't maybe. maybe. I, had a, yeah. I had an ultrasound tech for Sela's like hydronephrosis. That's all we ever looked at. Say, this can be a marker for Down syndrome, but you can also have 10 markers and not have Down syndrome. And I was like, okay. Oh. So, so yeah, let's we'll all go, just, let's just decide. Don't we'll just wait for the doctors. <laughs> yeah, um. yeah, so yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we we waited for the doctor. At, like we got out of there pretty quickly, and they said, "Hey, you need to wait in a a room for the doctor." And the doctor was a big family friend of ours. He like went to our church. He was like our Sunday school director. I mean, great man, love him, and he was like, look, this looks like, and 
basically a tumor is what he said. Um, and turns out we were sent to a maternal fetal medicine doctor shortly after who said Addie was born or was going to be born with a sacrococcygeal teratoma, which is like the biggest mouthful ever, but it basically means a tumor on your bottom. We did an amniocentesis. We were asked if we wanted to um, terminate the pregnancy, to which we said multiple times no. How did you feel when all of this was going on? Like when you sat in that room and your Sunday school teacher is giving you this news, like how did you feel as a first-time mom facing that? I mean, absolutely devastated. Like we went into that appointment with big smiles, so excited. We were finally going to know what we were having and, you know, be able to buy pink or blue clothes or whatever. And then it was just this overwhelming sense of just sadness that just loomed. And, you know, then you walk out of the doctor's appointment and there's women in the waiting room and they're Mm-hmm. significant others and they're laughing and smiling or whatever. And here we were like trying to hide the fact that we'd been sobbing our eyes out until we got to the car. And then of course, going to the car and calling our parents and saying, something's wrong with the baby. That is horrible. Horrible feelings right now. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it, it was awful. And, and it's like, your family doesn't know what to do. You know, how do they comfort? You know, it's, it was really hard, especially as first time parents. And I mean, it doesn't really matter what, you know, which child it is, but just being new into it all. And it it was awful. And then the rest of your pregnancy, were you anxious? Were you sad? Were you, I mean, once you found out what was going on or as much as you can find out while you're pregnant, because they really can't tell you anything until the child, I mean, heck, Lorelai is five and a half and they still can't tell me stuff, but five, but yeah. I mean, did they ever talk about like the potential of um, like her not surviving the pregnancy or, I mean, what were their recommendations based on their findings? So basically, we ended up going to um, Texas Children's Hospital, a very prestigious hospital in Texas, and um, doing a bunch of scans there and speaking to a man that actually does in utero surgery to remove sacrococcygeal teratomas. Basically, his findings were that we could easily have um, a C-section and like at normal gestation time. And then she could have surgery after that at least was hopeful to us that she wouldn't need in utero surgery. Because if you Google sacrococcygeal teratoma, you're going to see teratomas the size of the baby, if not um, larger. So they can, they they have the potential to unfortunately kill a baby in, in utero, but thankfully um, hers was still at a pretty small size for what she was. So we monitored, like I had every other week appointments and scans and they would scan every single bone, every single everything. And then we did the amniocentesis and were able to get some genetic information. Now that to me was even harder than all of this because the geneticist that we had was very blunt and she was maybe not the best in bedside manner. 
I'm not saying I want someone to sugarcoat things because with something that gives knowledge for the future and things like that, you obviously want to be prepared. But I think there's a way that you can do that and do it kindly. Um, You can meet the parent where they are. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so they, they basically... Again, like you said, they don't know everything and they don't um, necessarily know what's going on. But um, genetics, they do know some things. So they were able to say, hey, this is what's going on. And these are things that could potentially happen once Addie is born. But it was like the potential. It's never a finite, this is what's going to happen. So we just said, okay, these are things that could possibly happen. And We will just take them as they come, I guess. They prepared us for a four to six week hospitalization. And as mentioned before, um, that turned into 10 months Mm -hmm. once she was born. Mm -hmm. And how did you feel when they said a four to six week hospitalization? Because I was dropped in the NICU, like they threw me out of a helicopter and we landed there. It was not a plan. It was terrifying. Knowing ahead of time where you able to prepare? Like, how does somebody who has never been in the NICU prepare for that? So they actually prepared us as much as they could beforehand. Like we actually went through like a NICU tour beforehand so we could like know where she would be. I mean, it still doesn't technically prepare you by any means, but um, at least we kind of knew, okay, this is where she's going. We knew ahead of time, at least that she was going. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't going to be a surprise after birth. And they told us that they would have a team ready. Mm-hmm. And so when I had my C-section with Addie, I mean, there was, there was a whole NICU team and they're just waiting um, with an incubator with, you know, um, intubation kit if needed and all of these different things. So I had my, my surgery, they took her and I mean, I barely heard one cry and they had whisked her out already to um, the NICU. And once I was stable enough, um, a couple hours later, I was able to see her and my husband was able to be with her that whole time. Mm-hmm. It still was odd. It still was odd just to know that like she was going to be there. But I think assuming that they were correct and that it would only be a four to six week stay, I thought, well, that's not that bad. Just it could be worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was kind of like, okay, we can do four weeks. That's a month. And I was a teacher, like I said. So I told them that I would be back in six to eight weeks. Like I would, my maternity leave, like I had put a check with a down payment for Addie to go to like the baby daycare there. That's how I just was so unassuming of really what the gravity of our situation was. And Maybe sometimes I live with rose-colored glasses. Sometimes that is to a little bit of a fault. And sometimes it works to my benefit. So it just depends. But I really did not think, like, I just thought it could be totally worse. Well, and you're a first-time mom, right? I mean, yeah. you don't. I was just thinking when you were talking about how you had your C-section and you barely heard her cry and she was out. And I just, my heart just sank because I remember what it was like holding my babies for the first time. And although you were a first-time mom and didn't know what that felt like, that still had to have been crushing. Absolutely. Like, I had no idea if she was okay or what was going on. I didn't even get to see her face. They didn't even bring her to me and say, like, here she is. They literally had a team just whisk her as fast as they could. Did you find that you were pretty calm or were you, like, kind of hysterical? Because I would have been like, what is going on? 
I think because I knew the team was there and that's what they were waiting for. I was not hysterical, but I definitely was like, hurry up and get me over to the NICU. Yeah. And I saw her as much as I could in that, you know, healing time. The next part of that for me, the hardest part for me was leaving the hospital the first time because our children's hospital was connected to where I had my emergency C-section. So while I was still inpatient, they could wheel me over and I could sit next to Lorelai. I wasn't able to hold her until she was nine days old. And, you know, I could touch her and stuff, but I wasn't able to hold my kid. I had to go home before I even held my child. The feeling of leaving the hospital that first time without your kid, who did it hit mm. you? Oh, it hit me so hard. Um, yeah, our women's part of the hospital was connected to the NICU as well. And so like you, I was able to kind of get wheeled back and forth or walk. Once I was discharged and had to go home, that was just such a gut punch type feeling. You just don't expect that. Even though, even when you're prepared, like Mm -hmm. you're just not expecting that feeling, that feeling like I just had my baby and I'm not walking out with my baby. And I just remember sobbing. And and the fact too was that we lived half an hour away from this hospital. And so that was even harder knowing my baby is in a whole other city. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it was it was really, really hard. I remember just sobbing in the parking lot, um, having to leave her, like and, and know that she was with, I mean, obviously trained professionals, but strangers. But not you. Yeah, exactly. That feeling haunted me throughout our entire stay. Like it was the worst in the beginning, but there were still days where you're two months into this and you're still going home after tucking your baby into her incubator or her bed, you know, hospital bed. And you're still walking out at 10 o'clock at night without your kid. I only only did it for three months with Lorelai and a month for Benji, but you were a long hauler and did, did it ever get easier or did it ever become normal to you? It got easier. I think as time went on just because it was 10 months, but definitely those first few months, especially like I would just come home and I would sit in this empty nursery mm-hmm. and just sit there and like, I was nursing or I was pumping. So pumping you know, is the worst. Something. Yeah. It is. It's the worst. I would just sit there and pump and just be so sad that, like, I'm just sitting here in this room that I spent so much time decorating and getting ready. And for what? And I have this drawer full of diapers that, I mean, Eventually, I had to put the diapers in a bin and save for when Lawson was born because we never even got to use those sizes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how much time passed. And at first, it, like I said, it was really hard. But maybe five, six months, in, probably about five months into it, I had some blog friends invite me out to Dallas for a fun like dinner event. And, um, I'd been blogging since my husband and I were engaged. And so it had been several years and these are women that I'd followed forever and made good friendships with. And they convinced me to go have dinner with them and get out of the hospital for once because I was going from like seven in the morning till like nine, nine thirty at night. 
every single, like every single day. Um, and if I was late, I would like freak out. So at that point she had been stable enough and I felt like, you know, we had gone through a bunch of surgeries and she was doing well. And so I could go. And, um, that was such a nice night for me. And, um, so impactful because I just needed to be around people and it wasn't the hospital. And shortly after she went home for six days and then was back for four months. So it was much needed, but that was pretty much the only time I did anything kind of normal in there. It never, it never got easier because we were talking before that it's, you said it was like a, um, hurricane or, uh, with tornadoes. And to me, I felt like it was, I I always said it was like a roller coaster and that's what it was. You never knew what each day was going to bring. We're going to take a quick pause. Hey, are you a medical or special needs mom? Yeah. Yeah. You, I'm talking to you. We have a club called the 4am mom club. It's a bunch of us moms. We get together. We, I don't know. We, we talk about life and kids and We have some really cool professionals who have kind of come in and we have a fascia fix and we have a home organizer and we have all these cool people who are coming to love on mamas like us. So join the club. If you go to www.4am-mom-club.com, you can get more information and join us. There's actually a video of Diane and I talking. So if you want to see our faces, you could go there and watch. See you there. When did she get trached? Was that something you knew was going to happen or was that an unexpected dip in the roller coaster? That was unexpected. So Addie got trached at three months old. She had two failed extubations prior to that. The first one was extremely traumatic. Um, I had my phone out with me. I had my phone all the time. I'm a blogger. I document everything. And I had my phone out ready to video when they were going to extubate Addie. And it was just me, her nurse, and her respiratory therapist. And I thought, I'm going to video this because she's always had tape over her mouth Mm -hmm. to hold the tube. And I've never seen her naked, beautiful Mm -hmm. face. And so I was like, I'm going to record this moment. It's going to be the best moment. And my husband was working So I was like, I'm going to record this for him too. So like he can see. And like, of course, our parents who had never seen her without tubes too. So I had my phone there and they pull her tube out and we're just watching her. And I'm like taking pictures and video. And then all of a sudden she starts getting blue and gray. And all of a sudden I see them press the red button Um, 20 people swarm around Addie's bed and I'm standing there frozen because I don't know what to do. And I'm watching my kid essentially almost die. Uh Um, and I just remember slowly, I had my phone in my hand and I just remember slowly putting it down and just standing there like. I cannot even believe what I'm seeing. It's like when you, like when they say it's like you see a train wreck, like, or a car wreck and you just, you want to look away because it's so awful, but like you just can't help but keep watching. Mm -hmm. And it was like that for me. And finally 
someone noticed me and they're like, mom, come on, let's go. And they kind of like whisked me away to like a parent, um, kind of like a little lunch area. And then I just completely broke down in tears. And those quiet rooms are always the worst. Yeah, it was. Whenever they put you in a quiet room, buckle up. Yeah. And that's, that's what it was. And they re-intubated her. And then a week later they said, Hey, we're going to try this again. We think maybe she's ready now. Maybe she just needed a little extra time. And they said, mom, why don't you go to like the parent lounge? That's what it was. It was the parent lounge. They're like, why don't you go to the parent lounge? Um, and then we'll let you know when it's all done and like how she's doing. And I was like, yeah, I think I'll do that. And so they did that a second time. And then they said, no, it, it failed. And so then they had um, a trach nurse come and speak with me about Addie needing to get a trach. And I was in so much denial. I was like, no, just one more time. Let's just do one more time. You know, um, there was a stigma around trachs, like trachs are gross, trachs are weird, whatever you, They're you know, scary. there's. They're scary, right? Yeah. That's that's what people think. There's like all these crazy thoughts that happen. And it's just for lack of education. And even though I had a niece that had a trach when she was little, I still, I, I just knew like there was stigma around it. And I just didn't want that for my child. And so I tried to fight for a third extubation later on. And they said, honey, no, this is not you know, this is going to be better for her to have a trach. And eventually if she grows out of it, like we can take the trach out and that's fine. And so at three months old, she had a trach put in. And as nervous as I had been for that day to come, it was also the most amazing day because I finally saw her without tape all over her face. And I was like, she's just so beautiful. And it was just such a good moment despite being what it was at that time. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And so now you are years removed and the trach I'm sure is a lifeline for her, but a lifeline for you too. Absolutely. And it's something that honestly, like the trach does not bother us. It's like, it's just a everyday thing. It's no big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, we, try to like normalize it around kids that like see her and have questions and that kind of thing. And um, it's just not a big deal in our house anymore. It's definitely not what I thought it was going to be. Like as far as me hyping it up in my mind that it was this big thing, it's really not. Other than the fact that it takes entire van worth of equipment to go anywhere. But my friends who have trached kids, you get it down, right? Like it becomes... You, you figure out where to tuck the tubes and pull the bags and you can go to Target with her, right? Yeah. I mean, well, pre-pandemic, at least I would take yeah. her everywhere. Now, not so much. But yeah, I mean, I have a big backpack and we stuff her suction machine. We have a bag that has like extra trachs and whatever in case of emergency. I keep that there. Um, I keep an Ambu bag, which is like what they use to help give breaths to kids or people whenever they need help. Um, so I have that for like severe emergencies that goes with us everywhere. And I just take my backpack and she's good. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No big deal. How did you feel going from this is something could be wrong, quote unquote wrong with your child mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to 
three to four weeks in the NICU to 10 months in the NICU PICU. And you're just so positive now. So if there's if there's moms listening who are facing this or who are knee deep in the NICU or who are just leaving the NICU with a trached child freaking out because life is so different. Or yeah. sitting in there. I mean, that struck me when you talked about like you came home to an empty nursery. Like that just made my heart crumble. And but yet you sound so smooth and positive and like you're there. How do you get from that point to where you are? Or what do you say to them? Honestly, I think what it is, is that I made a decision in being positive because what is the point of sulking and being sad and depressed about my this situation, if you want to call it, that we were in? And it just was like, I'm so sad all the time. I'm so upset. And there's a lot of trauma that comes with having a kid in the NICU. But at some point you have to say, you know, this is our life. We're going to embrace being the parents of a kid with disabilities. Um, And we're going to live life to the fullest. And we're not going to let this get us down. Like, in the end, we're all family. We're here. We're together. That's what matters. And you can either choose to let it overrun your life or not. Mm-hmm. And I think I just was like, I am so tired of the ups and downs in the NICU. I'm tired of that controlling our lives. And I just said, you know what? We're going to make the best of it. Like we're going to celebrate holidays in the hospital. And when I'm talking about celebrate, Addie had a full on Halloween costume in the NICU her first year. And you better believe that my husband and I dressed up as well. We dressed up as deer and a hunter. And you better believe that I had full on face makeup because why not? Same with Christmas. Like I brought a little tree to her bedside on Christmas morning. I brought a blanket and all the presents and we set up a camera with a little tripod and took pictures like, and we just decided like, we're not going to let this get us down. There's no point. Let's enjoy what we have because honestly, we didn't know if Andy was going to have another Christmas or another Halloween or whatever. And so it was like, let's just live it up and just do it right, you know? And so like a switch that went off that went because it is hard. And I mean, was it like a switch that just went, okay, we're gonna do this and we're gonna we're gonna make the best of this, damn it. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what it was. And it's it's definitely a mindset thing because when you're in the hospital, it can be very depressing. It can be so depressing. You know, at first when you have a baby, there's people visiting all the time and they're like, oh, let me see your baby. And I want to hold the baby. And when you have a kid in the NICU, that all gets missed. That doesn't happen. Or maybe you have people that come visit you at first and then that number starts dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. And people go on with their lives while you're still stuck in the hospital, especially for this extended amount of time. I'm sure you have the occasional visitor or things like that, but really, truly, it begins to get lonely. And I can't imagine the COVID moms, like the I the can't mom, either. I the would. NICU, not COVID, but the moms who are in the the NICU right now during COVID. Yeah. My heart breaks for them. Yeah, 
they're amazing. They're amazing people uh-huh. because I don't know how I would do it. But then at the same time, I hear that phrase all the time. Uh-huh. And I say, you know what? You do what you do for your kid because you love them so much. So those moms are super moms, whether uh-huh. they um, know it or not or believe it or not. But yeah, it's just, there was just a light switch that happened. We just said, you know what? We're we're not going to let this get us down. It's already hard enough. And it stuck with you. You just did a week in the PICU because your whole family had a GI bug and you're like painting her nails and doing all this stuff. And I mean, I am inspired by your strength and positivity when your kid is in the the PICU and she was helicoptered without you. And I mean, I would have been losing my mind. Yeah. I mean, look, you got to make friends with the uh, child life people in the hospital. They know what's up. Um, shout out to them because they're amazing. And honestly, they just keep it, I don't want to say fun in the hospital, like as much fun as you can get. They definitely just make it a little bit better, a little easier. And mm-hmm. so whenever we are inpatient, uh, I like to contact child life and get like fun toys for Addie. Cause I never pack. I mean, who packs toys like to go to the hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Like I just have them bring toys or I'll say, you know what? Yeah. She needs her nails painted. Like, let's just do something because otherwise I'm just sitting there doing nothing, watching her breathe. I mean, yeah. literally, yeah. um, it's pretty much all you can do in the hospital. So child life, they make it better and Mm -hmm. we do what we have to do. But yeah, we were in the hospital for a week and then literally the day after she got home, we released our book, Authentically Addie. So let's talk (laughs) about this book. Yeah. So you, I mean, you dove right in, you flipped the switch in the NICU and said, we're going to make the best of this. And the best of it includes Addie having her own book series now. Yeah. Yeah. Because why not? Home, right? Why not? Right? Why not? Yeah, it is so much fun. It was an idea that came to me a couple years ago. I had an experience with a woman who was trying to interview me for something. Um, I had been asked by a friend to participate in this interview. The woman had brought her children with her, two boys. And one of the boys said something really rude about Addie and her physical appearance. And the mom did not correct her son or say anything. She almost like ignored the fact that he had said something so rude. And I was so offended by it that I went home and wrote this blog post with like a video of me crying because I was so upset. And like, I mean, it was super dramatic, but it was actually so well received And people messaged me like crazy and they were like, okay, but what do I say when my kid is making a rude comment about someone with a disability? Or what do I say when, you know, my kid is glancing at someone, you know, or, you know, and, and I was like, yes, this is what the problem is. The problem is there's not education and people just don't flat out know because they were never educated about it. And so it just was this thought in the back of my head, like, we need to do something about this. Over the years, we've followed tons of amazing influencers that are disabled and other moms that have kids with disabilities. And last year, Addie was in the hospital around this time of year, actually, um, like almost exactly this time of year, last year. And she 
actually a friend of mine had written a book and I thought if she can write this book and it's like so amazing, what if I wrote a book about this like topic of normalizing conversations around disabilities and, you know, helping kids because I was trying to have Addie in like these inclusive environments, like taking her to vacation Bible school with kids who've never been around another kid with a disability, just trying to get kids knowing who Addie was and that she wasn't quote unquote scary or anything like that, that she was just another kid like them. And so I talked to my friend's publisher. She said, this is exactly what the book industry needs. And the rest was history. We wrote a book last year during a pandemic. It's awesome and highlights just having conversations about disabilities, that it's absolutely okay to have those conversations with your kids and have them early. You know, that's really, really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have not read it yet. I am so excited to read it, though, and share it with my kids. We need to get you a copy for sure. I think it's it's really great for anyone. Are there, am I wrong? I thought, is it going to be a series? Are there going to be more? Are you doing just the one and then seeing what happens? So um, I definitely wanted to see how authentically Addie was received before mm-hmm. doing a second. We know there's, um, like in my mind, there's a second one um, and a third one. Um, So it's definitely going to be a series, but I I wanted to wait and kind of see, but it has been so well received. And I think the reason for that being is premise behind the book is that Addie goes to a zoo and she meets a zookeeper and they go around this zoo and meet different animals that are being rehabilitated. And each animal has a different disability. They get to learn about the disability and they get to learn about tools that maybe can assist um, with someone that has that disability. It's such a super inclusive book. And I'm finding that so many parents and grandparents and um, just people in general, even people that don't have children are saying, this book is what we needed. This book makes my child happy because finally there's someone in literature like them Mm -hmm. or thank you for creating this book that um, my kid can relate to or oh my kid realized that the moral of the story was you know everyone is different but we're actually all the same and just knowing that there's a book like that out now and that it's being so well received because of the inclusivity It's just awesome. So I couldn't not make a second one to come up, you know, after that. Well, and to go from that day when you were told in the ultrasound room, that crushing feeling to, I mean, you're glowing when you talk about your daughter Mm -hmm. and this book and to go from there to where you are now, it, it's beautiful. And if there's moms listening, I mean, you're, you're listening right now to three mamas who have a variety of special needs children. If you're getting that news on that crushing day, like I know it sounds cliche, but it will be okay. Um, in some way, shape, or form, it will be okay. Absolutely. If we can do it, you can do it. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what? I think a huge takeaway from Authentically Addie is also that the word disability or the word disabled is not 
bad by any means. Like it just, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. And a diagnosis does not define you. It does not define your child. It does not define your family member, whoever has this diagnosis. It does not define that person. It's just a part of them. And there is nothing wrong with that. I wholeheartedly believe that God makes us the way he does, whatever that looks like, for an incredible purpose. It's funny because when I was pregnant with Addie, shortly after the ultrasound, like a few days later, I was commuting to work. I had like a 45-minute drive to work every day. I just remember one day like just in my car driving home and I was praying and I just was like, God, I don't know anything about this like life with a kid that's going to have so many challenges, but whatever this is for, like whatever, why this is happening, let it be used for your glory. And to me, that has been shown in more ways than I knew through our blog and, you know, parents reaching out and now through Authentically Addie, like to just see how people are touched by her story and things like that. And you may not have a platform like mine if, you know, if you're just like a typical mom that is not a blogger or whatever, but like your child or your family member, whoever is here on earth for purpose, even if you touch one life inadvertently, you know, even without your knowledge, I, I feel like you've done your job. I just feel like that's what it's about, you know? And so a diagnosis really means nothing. You know, it means nothing in the grand scheme of things. Uh, it's wonderful. It should be celebrated um, to be different. And there's nothing wrong with being different at all. I love how much worth you put on these kids' lives. Mm-hmm. Like just based solely on you know, the purpose that they're given and it's all for God's glory, but it adds so much worth. And just you writing these books, I feel like it just is going to, that's just going to perpetuate, you know, people just becoming aware. Thanks. This is a great place to ask you the question, Stephanie, what gives you hope? Honestly, what gives me hope is just knowing that there is more knowing that there is such a purpose like like i said like just knowing that there is so much going for our lives and um that it all benefits god like to me that is such a great hope and it i know that i mean there's one day that Addie could potentially not be here one day um and that is horrible Um, I'm going to make myself cry. Um, but knowing that her life is valuable and knowing that she's changing lives, even through a silly, like children's book, um, that to me is just what gives me hope and what keeps me going and why I work so hard (laughs) all the time um, to do, you know, the best for her. So, um, yeah, it's a big one, but it's a good one. It's a really good one. And I feel like we need to give credit for these kids 
and, you know, parents for saying yes to God's call on their lives because they are changing so many lives. Absolutely. You're changing lives too. Absolutely. It's her, but you are, you're, you're helping. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks. I didn't mean to cry. I'm not. Ah, oh, that's but, you know. I cry every time. Uh, I'm just gonna. It's not. It's not chairs. a when autumn comes without somebody crying. No. Oh, there you go. Well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't she just so lovely? She was so. She was. She was so positive, and it just, just the pure joy that exuded from her was really awesome. I really enjoyed her conversation. And she's such a strong, like anyone who can survive 10 months in the NICU and the PICU and just flip that switch and say, damn it, we're going to make the best of this. Mm-hmm. The NICU is so hard. So, so hard. I, you know, I have to say it was very, I was really kind of sip, sitting back and soaking all this in because even in the special needs community, I have never experienced a NICU stay ever. And I know people that have. And so everybody has the opportunity to learn through this. So does Hazel. <sighs> I was giving you the look to see if you heard her. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I hear her. Yeah, I, I've i done the NICU twice. And you know, the funny thing is, is that when when we were doing our hospital tour, I remember part of the tour and they were like, and here's the NICU. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to need that. We're not going to, we're not going to need the NICU. (laughs) God was like, ding, ding, ding. But you know, the NICU, as crazy as it sounds, is part of my journey and I'm so grateful for it. Um, Absolutely. By the way, you can find Stephanie at thevintagemodernwife.com. You can find Authentically Addie books, which let me tell you, is a number one national best-selling book at this point. You can buy it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Stephanie is Matthew's Bambina, M-A-T-H-E-W. Did I spell that right? M-A-T-H-E-W-S-B-A-M-B-I-N-A on Instagram. So this is Susan, and I am going to go... I have no idea what I'm going to do. My husband's downstairs waiting for me to finish. And I, yeah. So I'm going to go downstairs. And this is Diane. And I am going to go outside because it is gorgeous out again up here. Have a good one. Bye, guys. We know you have so many choices on how to spend your time. Thank you so much for choosing to spend it with us. We would be honored to hear your unique, complicated, and hope-filled stories. We would love for you to connect with us and share your story on our website, www.whenautumncomes.com, and you can find us on social media at When Autumn Comes Podcast. Also, check us out at 4AM Mom Club, where we will be sharing our middle-of-the-night shenanigans, Etsy finds, Netflix faves, and other things that get us through. We would love for you to hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll continue to hear unique stories, feel a whole lot of comfort and connection, and hopefully share in a few laughs. We are new to the podcasting world, so this show is produced by yours truly. With hope and a whole lot of excitement, Diane and Susan. See you next time.